0: You're listening to the Pop-Tart Podcast. Girls Down, You already know.
1: Can you hear the
2: screaming in the street?
1: Oh, of course they asked it for sex. He wants to look more like the robot he made of himself?
2: <gasps> Scars, deformed bodies from surgery... And I think that's why people fear that robot dog. I used to beat up the boys.
1: Hello, and welcome to Pop-Tart. I'm Emily Rems. I'm managing editor of Bust Magazine in New York City. My effervescent co-host, Callie, is not with me today, but I still love talking about pop culture. I love talking to you about pop culture, and today... Our guest is not only a groundbreaking pioneer in the field of robotic art, but I'm also lucky enough to call her a friend. Adrienne Wurtzel has been making and exhibiting her art for over 50 years. Her amazing genre-hopping projects include films, drawings, texts, robotic and telerobotic performance productions, artist books, photography, and online pieces. Her writing includes articles, fiction, and scripts, and her international collaborations with other artists, scientists, and engineers made her an important resource in her years as a professor emeritus in emerging media and entertainment technologies at New York City College of Technology. Currently, she's working on an art book called See No Evil that is about to be released by Small Editions, and I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Adrian! Yay! Yay! Yay.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
1: Let's start by talking about your early life. You are one of those rare New York artists who was actually born here. You were educated here. You were born in Brooklyn. And you were so clear in your mission to be an artist that you were studying painting and drawing and sculpture at the Brooklyn Museum Art School at only 15. But I know that you were making art a lot longer than that. Tell me the story of how you ended up in art school so young and how you found your voice as a creator.
2: Well, um, I was five. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I was five years old. And uh, I lived in the Williamsburg Housing Projects, which is now a landmark in Brooklyn. It was a, a modernist... Um, housing project for low income. In the basements of that project were paintings on the walls from the Works uh, uh, Progress Administration, um, where they hired, the government hired artists to do these murals. And I remember being completely astounded as a little person and not knowing exactly what they were, but like being blown away. And then people thought that that was inaccurate, except that then the Brooklyn Museum discovered them and uh, restored them. And they're now, all those paintings are now hanging in the Brooklyn Museum. Wow. Yeah. It's, it was very vindicating actually, because I kept saying, I saw something, I saw something, I saw something. And all I knew was I want to do that. <laughs> so uh, I did. I was a serious painter in kindergarten, you know, not a careerist, but uh, I was allowed to do it full time every day. And it was like bliss. So my first memories of being an artist are associated with bliss, which is a far cry, you know, from anyone who's maturing into a mature artist where you're doing a lot of applications and you get 99 rejections to every acceptance. However, I've done pretty well, so I shouldn't complain. So my first love was abstract painting, actually, and those paintings were abstract. And they were by American painters who were just wonderful. In fact, the WPA program at the time was run by Burgoyne Diller, who was a wonderful painter, and my teacher eventually at Brooklyn College. So it sort of came around full circle.
1: Wow! I, I'm trying to get the timeline right for you. I believe that you were only 21 when you graduated from Brooklyn College with your B.A. in fine arts. Is that right?
2: That's correct. I went in when I
1: was 16. Amazing. You're a little Wonderkind.:
2: uh, I was an English major at first because I didn't want to contaminate my art with academia. <laughs> I was that kind of kid, Uh-huh. you know, pure abstract art. And it was a big mistake because the, uh, the art department at Brooklyn college really contained some of the most wonderful abstract artists ever.
1: Is and that where you studied with Louise
2: bourgeois? Louise bourgeois. She was amazing. <gasps> yeah. She, we, we kind of thought the same. I was really surprised. And, uh, She liked, I took a sculpture course with her, and I made this enormous uh, plaster sculpture that was supposed to be, like, about growth and a flower, (laughs) and not in a romantic way. You know, it was pretty rough, and she loved it. And then all the male professors gathered around it and said, oh, a vagina. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Uh, And then my mother went to see it and I thought, I wonder what she'll think. And she said, oh, darling, what a beautiful
1: flower. (laughs) There you have it. Thanks, mom. (laughs) But so you were 21. You had graduated from college. It was 1963. You were let loose on an unsuspecting populace in New York City. You're mixing and mingling with other artists. You're making the scene as an independent young woman. What do you remember about your life from that time? You know, it just seems like an amazing dream to just picture what New York City in 1963 for a recent art school graduate must have been like. Like, what, Who were you interacting with and what kind of work were you doing?
2: I was doing, uh, when I graduated from school, I decided to start all over with art and I started with some representational paintings of, um, that depicted the relationship between Adam and Eve. Huh. And Adam and Eve, and a, a, a little subtext to that is that I had broken up with someone. <laughs> so uh, Adam and Eve were estranged in the paintings. They were all like life-size, like six by six feet. And Adam and Eve were having various attitudes in different paintings. Um, and um, this was not my forte, but it was something I felt I had to do because my my education actually started with life drawing uh-huh. and all of that. At the Brooklyn Museum, we, we, we did life drawing, we did sculpture from life, we did everything from life, and... Um, I still have those drawings, which is pretty amazing.
1: That is. I'd love to see them.
2: Yeah. So um, I got my apartment on 7th Street, which was a floor through. It was the highest priced apartment anyone um, of my friends had. It was $63 a month. And, (sighs) (laughs) And it's really funny because everyone said you'll never make the rent. Uh, but I worked. You know, I always, I had this pure attitude about art where I, I kept my, the money out of it. Uh-huh. It, was, it was pretty naive. So, and anyway, so I had this floor through apartment that became little by little, you know, a total painting studio with a bed under some of the canvases. And it was pretty much more square, it was like 600 square feet, And I started painting from other photographs of uh, my parents, their their marriage, their wedding photo. Uh, And all of this is in um, a film made by Mark Rappaport called Friends, which was made in 1967, which depicts 7th Street and uh, all the paintings I was making then. I loved that apartment because it, it enabled me to do any art I wanted. And then a few years later, I got the apartment over it, which was at the exorbitant price of $112 a month. (laughs) So you would think I would live downstairs and have the uh, studio upstairs, but actually the whole thing was studio, always studio, you know, everything. In fact, there's a spread in Cosmopolitan Magazine from 1974 where I'm in my studio and it's completely spattered with Uh paint. And I was upset because Cosmopolitan magazine made me wear overalls. (laughs) I I thought, you know, I'd wear some glamorous, low cut gown or something. Uh And they vetoed that and said, no, you have to be a working artist. Oh, well, were they at
1: least your overalls? So I,
2: they were my overalls because I bought turquoise overalls. <laughs> so at least they were turquoise. And, um, and then I painted through different cycles and ended up tw- towards the 80s doing a lot of abstract work again, which was mostly about lines of paint and depth perception. I discovered I did, didn't have any depth perception at all. And never have had it. So I being deprived of that suddenly became the major tragedy of my life. Because I actually, it explained why I couldn't keep paintbrushes up in a can or something. I always had to have everything lying down. Because if you see me at a restaurant pouring a drink with my arm extended, you'll see me pouring it on the table. <laughs> I really do not have any depth perception. So, um, and those paintings, then I went into an Egyptian phase, and I, I actually went to Egypt at one point.
1: Cool. And
2: um, did a lot of architectural type paintings that were uh, based on structures in, in ancient Egypt, very highly colored, because although everyone I knew was romanticizing about the beautiful pastel ruins they actually were totally garish (laughs) when they were new in primary colors and then after that i went i decided i needed to go to graduate school to get a real job i woke up one day and i was in my 50s and i said oh my god what will happen <laughs> you know what what's going to happen how am i going to survive oh like oh so um i did what my mother had told me to do in the beginning i went back to school got an mfa and became
1: a teacher and that was at the school of visual arts yeah the mfa
2: was at the school of visual arts and computer arts and it was the best thing i ever did because I, you know, I went into it thinking, oh, I'll learn how to do desktop publishing and then I'll shoot myself. (laughs) But that didn't happen. What happened is it was just when the web was coming starting and you could hardly do anything. We were writing HTML on yellow pads.
1: Wow. Yeah. I want to ask you more specifically about it. So you were studying computer art at SVA from 1994 to 1996. This is a time when most of us were just starting to figure out what the internet even was and how it worked. And you were on the cutting edge, figuring out how to use this technology as a medium for your creative vision. I'm so curious about what it was like being a woman in tech at this time. Were you all alone? Were there other women there? And did that work... um, when you were studying computers there, at what point did you decide to explore telerobotics? I have to assume that that one fed into the other.
2: It was difficult because I'd been out of school for 30 years, but it was so exciting that I, I overcame, you know, a lot of fear about it. First of all, I found out that I love to think about how machines are made. And, you know, part of our education then was taking apart and putting back together computers. Part of it was uh, very little of it was actually learning software. In fact, we had to learn the hardest thing to learn were acronyms for the Internet. Huh. The acronyms were impossible, and we had a whole class in it. And eventually, eventually one of my classmates, um, Heather Wagner, wrote a play, and we all performed it as as our final project because nobody could grasp the class. (laughs) And what it was was we all acted out different parts of the Internet at that time. So I was a stimulating terminal.
1: (laughs) Of course you were.
2: Yeah, of course I was. You can just about imagine, right? (laughs) And um, I went around stimulating Everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it it was a wonderful play, and I wish we had a film of it because it it was just genius. It was so incredible. So we coped with learning, you know, learning tech at a point when we knew it was in its infancy. And the best thing, it was like the Wild West because you would go online and there were no routers yet. So you could crack into any systems
1: (laughs) were you a little baby hacker
2: (laughs) baby hacker yeah I mean this was before you know they regulated anything so what would happen is like I'd be home and I think I want to talk to somebody in school so I'd log in and I'd I'd look around in the Unix machines and um, all of a sudden I saw this message pop up that said who the fuck is Adrian?" (laughs) <laughs> and it turned out the system had crashed and there was some guy from California, a Unix Tech guy in there. And he found me roaming around saying, is anybody here? Can I, anybody want to play? You know, <laughs> and those were really exciting da- I mean, they're over, you know, but they were really exciting times because also the web was in its, inf- I did my thesis. I made a fictive web piece. Because the web was very limited, you could just about center as a woman. I never noticed anything because we were ha- like half women half men, and everybody was so in the in terms of graduate school there were there was a lot of it was okay there were a lot of um there was a lot of interchange interaction communication between the boys and the girls um and I don't remember one bad thing having to do with gender from that
1: experience. Okay. It was too early for there to have been the advent of the tech bro. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They hadn't arrived yet.
2: That's true. Later on, when I worked with engineers professionally to do robotics, I would have to overcome some obstacles being a woman. For instance, I received a, a National Science Foundation grant to do uh, a robotics project, and I received a, working with two engineers from Cooper Union. Uh huh. And Cooper was really reluctant to have me as a, a you know a, a principal. What do you call it? A principal investigator, you know. Till I got the two engineers on board, which was fine with me. I needed the engineers to work with. Also the biggest obstacle wasn't gender then, but it was language because actually we all use the same vocabulary. So I and an engineer will be collaborating with the same vocabulary. And we had no idea what the other one was talking about. Huh? So there is actually a paper online about it that one of those engineers wrote uh, about communicating, you know, very early on between art and science, Uh um, before it became so popular, you know, and I, I taught a wonderful class there that I just loved. It was the best thing I ever taught. And it was, um, called, um, what was it? Design illusion and design illusion and reality, I think something like that. Um, and that was that I got cooper 's a, a multidisciplinary school, so there's the art department, the architecture department, and the um, engineering and I was actually it was the School of Engineering that decided to do multi you know subject multi content classes. The art school was dead set against it at the time, not now, but
1: you know then so the and, scientists uh, were the creative ones
2: yeah uh, creative meant um, You know, meant uh, demented (laughs) or something close to like can't really think straight, you know, can't really no logic can't, you know, ever think straight. So uh, in this class, I had teams of engineers, architects and artists, students collaborate together on making something and designing something that could not possibly be made yet. They would have to treat it like it was a real project. Right, And of course, everything they came up with, everything they came up with has been made except the most fantastic project they had was a a robotic self-replicating bridge for the Bering Strait. Oh, wow. (laughs) Someday, right? Someday. It was so great because they had to learn about the winds. You know, they had to learn about all the, you know, and they had to do all this research and so there was a research component and then as their final product of course they couldn't make the thing so they would um they could do anything they could do uh, a faux sculptural rendition a model or a play they could write a play so many of them wrote plays and acted them out
1: i would like to go back for a moment because you touched on one of your most groundbreaking projects, which was, um, you mentioned that you got this big grant from the National Science Foundation. And when it comes to your pioneering work with telerobotics, I always return to this amazing installation that you did at the Whitney Museum. It's here in New York and it happened in 2001. It was this hugely ambitious project called Camouflage Town, in which you brought the museum together with this, the National Science Foundation for the very first time. The two, the two organizations had never worked together before. And you spearheaded the building of this robot named Kiru that lived in the Whitney and it interacted with physical and online visitors for months. It talked to visitors It commented on its environment. It transmitted video imagery and sound to the web. Meanwhile, Kiru's movements and speech and the camera were also being controlled by visitors who were logging in from all over the world. And the communications were being logged in um, and archived through the robot. You also, which I think is so, so funny, and it just tickles me, and it's amazing. You imbued this robot with five different personalities a wizard, a librarian of juxtapositions, a philosopher, a preacher, and a storyteller. And then you left a sixth blank slate personality that the visitors were actively creating by interacting. With it. Just to give this piece some context, which I feel like you already did a bit, but in 2001, when Kiru made its debut, I remember I was working at a theater company that hadn't even ever considered having a website. So, like you said, I was reading these hefty books on HTML at night and writing out HTML on yellow legal pads, trying to figure out how to build a website. For this theater company because I thought it would probably end up being important at some point (laughs) to have one. But while I'm doing that, you have this incredible multidisciplinary robot roaming around the Whitney, which is to say you're so far ahead of your time. When you made this robot, it was probably for the people interacting with it, like walking into Star Trek. I would love for you to talk to me about the different collaborations that went into making this big interactive robot and what you remember about the reactions of those people who encountered it and interacted with it for the first time in this, like, almost Internet world.
2: Okay, well, I'll I'll work backwards a little from what, because I remember the most recent thing you said. Sure. Um, it really surprised me that people attributed a uh, sentience to this machine. People really related to it personally. The people who controlled it, who talked through it, who aimed the camera, you could do the zoom, pan and tilt and you could the robot, you could uh, send the robot all over the museum. They reacted to it very personally and they asked it for things like love, Sex.
1: Wow. Oh, of course they asked it for sex. Yeah,
2: well, sex was a big thing. In fact, at one point, the Whitney asked me to put a red button on the robot that would activate stopping any bad language. Oh,
1: a censorship button.
2: I mean, people will say whatever they'll say. Right? Yeah. And they were very upset. So I put a red button on it, but it didn't do anything. <laughs> And I feel a little bad about it because they, they did fund uh, the National Science Foundation and uh, Cooper Union and um, the Whitney did fund that installation. The robot was actually a modified um, off-the-line production robot from a company then called PeopleBot. It delivered um, medical supplies in hospitals, Wow. And I've worked with different kinds of things. I've worked with robots made from scratch, and I've worked with off-the-shelf robots like this one, which cost, I think, almost (laughs) $50,000. And it was taken apart and redone by the great Cooper Union students. Wow. They They were the staple of this exhibit because they took shifts, because it, it could navigate by itself or navigate by people navigating it. And we had little signals in the ceiling. I had 50 solid-color paintings on the ceiling. My paintings were at the Whitney. Um, to, to navigate it so it didn't go in certain zones. It wasn't supposed to go in the elevator. And it wasn't supposed to go d- near the stairs. But of course, the minute people were aware there was a flight of stairs. Of course. They would say, they'd have the robot say, I'm gonna kill myself, I'm gonna kill myself, and (laughs) rush towards the stairs. (laughs) And the horrible solution was that we had to have a guard there because nobody could control it. I would go on in the middle of the night and people would be cleaning. And I'd say you missed a spot. I mean, the robot. It wouldn't freak them out. Yeah, totally freaked them out. (laughs) But I I loved telerobotics because I had begun working with virtual avatars before that. They were you know in um, things that were like uh, Second Life, but no no images, only text. Then Ah, called where you would
1: just describe what you looked like.
2: They were object-oriented, multi-user dungeons, <laughs> MOOs, and um, they were the best playground in the world because you didn't actually have to build anything. You could build it with words, so you programming the coding was all about words. Like I, tr- I tried to, I never finished it, but I tried to create uh, Chaucer, Chaucer's Pilgrims, in it. You know, you could create rooms, you could create worlds, you could create people, characters, and um, you could be anybody you wanted to in them. And I love that freedom. You could experiment sexually, you could experiment emotionally, you could experiment, you know, and um, nobody need know who you are unless you open your mouth and told everybody. (laughs) Uh And then... um, so then I got the idea that I wanted physical avatars and I love the idea of robots because they're clunky. And of course, at the time, they were totally primitive. I mean, all the animatronics in history where they have animatronic puppets and so, is better than what we had in the nineties as robots in a way. And um, I decided to do work with robots and I had no idea that half of the robot life would be how people reacted to it as human. Yeah. On every level. So that uh, the other thing it did that it wasn't supposed to do, and I have film of this is it it would go into the elevator. Uh Uh-huh. And, I sent a cameraman in there once, and it was amazing to see people in an elevator get in, look at this object, and treat it like the other. Uh Uh-huh. Some people actually cringed in the corner of the elevator. I think that's why they didn't want me to have it go in the elevator. Because it was too scary? It's too scary, yeah. And um, the other thing it did was record every other piece in that show the show was data dynamics curated by christian paul at the whitney and that was the other thing it did is it record and i have tons of vhs tapes
1: yes which
2: have to be might be it might be too late to uh digitize them but they really should be digitized it's
1: never too late
2: Really they don't deteriorate? I thought they'd deteriorate. But I'd love to do that because you would see all these people relating to this fairly dumb machine, you know, <laughs> as if it's just the the gods and no one was interested in its characters. They were only interested in using it to flirt. Uh-huh. It and to to carry on conversations with other people, which is fine. But all of it's that hidden subtext, you know, (laughs) just didn't fly somehow. So, uh, I mean, I loved it. The other thing I want to say is it was the first half of 2001, and the piece was called Camouflage Town because it was about a city that built a duplicate and all the wars were conducted in the duplicate town. Oh. So, isn't that kind of weird?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
2: So, like, it was like March through June of 2001. Uh-huh. And here are these two towns one's ver- imaginary, you know, one's real, and everybody lives in peace and harmony. And uh-huh. their jurisprudence, all their trials are conducted in mime. Because uh-huh. they do not trust words. So they they conduct all their lawyer stuff in, in mime. Uh-huh. And they have to act out, which was great because later on in classes, I was always making the students act out newspaper stories in mime. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a little scary that, you know, because there was, there was a picture, you know, the logo for the exhibition was a uh, a conglomerate of tall city buildings with co- camouflage town written over it. And so that one was, to- the you know, one was totally safe and the other one was totally expo- exposed to war and crime. And, and then 2000, you know, September came. Yeah. It's really weird. But yeah. Um, yeah. So what else can I tell you?
1: I would love it if you could tell me about your new book. I know it's called See No Evil, and it's coming out soon from small editions. What can you tell me about it?
2: The piece I'm doing now, the See No Evil book, is about somewhat about wishing for the disintegration of the self. Okay. Um, Because it's a completely self-oriented litany of complaints and anxieties covered by drawings, covered up by drawings which are, you know, freakish and at the same time beautiful from cabinets of curiosities. So they were very intimate and very personal. And of course I began to edit them because I wanted to mask them by these drawings so that phrases popped out that were really very fertile th- phrases. You know, they spark your imagination, but no one would want to read the text straight through. So it's, a, it's like a very long kind of selfie process. And uh, the drawings are, could be represented as how I feel in public, you know, how I feel like um, out of place or awkward or uh, because they're all um, from Siba's uh, cabinet of curiosities and some of them are made up and they're uh, freakish, could be called freakish. I, I think the juxtaposition, it's just the juxtaposition of this run-on litany of text of anxieties, maths by these drawings, which are quite beautiful, actually. Um, with F- Oh, and each, for this book, I'm doing 20 editions, 20 books, 20 books, each of which has its own arrangement of drawings on the same text. that re- It's run through an algorithm that applies the drawings differently for each book. That means that... Whoever owns a book can see a certain amount of text peeping through, and theoretically, if you had maybe over a thousand books, you could read all of it by going from book
1: to book. Oh, sneaky! So sneaky. each individual reader gets a different version of the story—total
2: different version of the. I've done that before in another book, and it's it's really nice because they read differently. In fact, there are twelve paperback books on Amazon which are the same text put through a different algorithm. So they're jumbled, but they're readable. Uh-huh. They're in paragraph sections. And that one has 12 different ISBN numbers.
1: Oh, wow. Because each one is different.
2: Each one is different. But of course, they're the same text, but in a different arrangement. I am also want to do an, an augmented reality piece where the drawings come to life and they're moving on your phone across the text.
1: Amazing.
2: Yeah, I can't wait to do that. And um, there'll be a show in early 2022 at the Center for Book Arts. It's a group show of artist books. And, uh, and this book should be in it because it should be finished by Christmas.
1: The future of all of us is somehow there's, there's a little corner of it that's being captured in your new book. Again, it's called See No Evil. And just based on what I know about the concept behind it, you know, the intimacy of this piece really seems so perfect for this era that we're entering into right now, where everyone is slowly creeping out from under a year of this terrified, introspective hibernation. And we're slowly learning to drop our literal and our metaphorical masks. And there's this sense of like, we we feel kind of monstrous creeping out of our homes and back into the world and interacting with each other. We're not used to seeing each other and we're also not used to being seen. And we want to cover up our truth with like something. So we have something that of the privacy that we discovered while we were alone. And I feel that's really articulated in this project that you're working on.
2: You're. That's really true. You're so amazing because the text is very insular. It's really like someone being locked up for a year. It's really like a mind that's ruminating on itself on and on because it can't get out. And the drawings, even when they're strange or weird, are really beautiful and loud. You know, they they have a very lively presence.
1: I went to see um, a photography exhibit of yours for a project called Ex Situ. Um, wh- you took the photos in 2014. I saw it, I believe, more recently. Um, and in this photography project, you planted obsolete tech items into the ground in nature. So, like, and then you took photos of them. So there would just be this beautiful outcropping of like dongles springing up out of the ground, surrounded by like ivy and leaves and flowers. And it looks very weird and very alien, but also very organic and very beautiful. I remember these like teeny tiny, like computer fans that looked like flowers and I saw it and I was like, note to self, like, if I ever have anything to landscape, even like a postage stamp worth of grass to landscape, like I wanna landscape with obsolete technological materials because this looks amazing. And I predict in my Kreskin moment that at some point something like that is gonna become like a design trend, mixing the organic and and the technological. And I think when I saw it, I was like, she's got something there. That is a thing. And, you know, like there was something very whimsical and very just sort of delightful about the images. But I think that it, it could actually have legs. That's my prediction about work of yours that hasn't totally manifested itself in the world yet. But I think it could totally do that.
2: Well, there are uh, wearables, people, mm-hmm. you know, who, who work in marvelous uh, integrating technology and fashion. Uh, there's also integrating tech into the body.
1: Right, yeah, making us more machine medical, than people.
2: There's an artist named Stella, Stellark, sorry, Stellark, who had an ear implanted, an extra ear implanted on his body. There's, uh, um, I can't remember the name, there's an artist who is colorblind who has has a permanently installed antenna in his brain to interpret sounds in such a way that he can read colors. Wow. I can find out who that is. I I actually know him, but I can't remember his name. And imagine these people going on airplanes. Oh, yeah, setting
1: off every metal detector they have.
2: (laughs) They set off every metal detector, and it's weird. I mean, he can't take it off. It's actually been, it's surgically implanted. Mm -hmm. But it's not like a regular medical device, like... um, what do you call it like a
1: pacemaker like a
2: pace it's not like a regular um medical device like a pacemaker it's something that's completely you know in terms of how the world sees everybody it's completely different and I always admire these artists who walk around with these extensions of themselves and especially in the case of the colorblind artist because it's It's supposedly a defect he's overcome. He can now, he can't see colors through it. But But he he can can interpret them Interpret them. Yeah. And he can guess, you know, he he guesses correctly. And um, so there's all kinds, um, I'm trying to remember what the field is, if it's called, if it's it's cybernetics or cyber something. But in any case, um, in the past 10 years, robotics, I mean, has just, changed so much that the, um, the robot in the sentient thespian is actually a commercially uh, available robot, um, and it, um, it actually has, is so expressive, which is why I picked it, because it has several degrees of motion in several limbs, and it's enough to make it really convey emotions. The robot dog, the police dog? Yes. Can I talk about that for a minute? Please do. That, is Boston, that robot that the police deployed was made by Boston Dynamics. That robot company really is amazing. They have robots doing things they can't possibly do. As a matter of fact, they've just worked it out. Uh, robots can jump they can hop on one foot Um, their locomotion is incredible they have a lot of joints their full body humanoid and they have a lot of joints and usually humanoid or animal-like robots repel me because I like abstraction Uh but one of the reasons that this is so moving and so important is that they're making exoskeletons with those capabilities for people who can't walk or yeah. move. So at uh, at what a few years ago at the um a a quadriplegic man in an exoskeleton stood up and kicked the ball, the first <laughs> ball. Yeah. And to me, you know, when I heard that, I was like in tears. <laughs> you know, it's Of course. It's just so amazing. Boston Dynamics makes these wonderful robots, uh, humanoid and animal-like. The dog was one. And they do incredible things. They're marvelous. But if you're not used to them, they can seem pretty eerie. There is something called the Uncanny Valley, And that's when everyone wants robots to be humanoid and to imitate humans. Um, They like that because it's familiar. But actually, it can get to a point where you're in the uncanny valley and completely horrified. Yeah. Um, There's a Japanese roboticist. He's very famous. And he makes humanoid robots. And I I heard him lecture very early on where he couldn't understand why his five-year-old daughter who hung out at his lab every single day after he made his first replica, which is so lifelike, he made it of her. He said, I don't understand it. She won't come to the lab.
1: Of course. Nobody wants to see their dad's robot version of them. Ew.
2: He made one of himself. And, you know, they're quite marvelous. You can't knock it. But he gets plastic surgery because he's aging and the robot isn't.
1: He wants to look more like the robot he made of himself. (gasps) Oh my God. What a story that is.
2: That's a great, you should actually (laughs) interview him. He's no, he, I mean, he, it's, 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 he hasn't, hasn't got a clue. Wow. You know, he doesn't have, or he didn't anyway, when I knew him, um, Around two thousand and eleven or so, I participated in a humanoid uh robotics conference because my film another film was shown uh and premiered there and his his robot was there and it was malfunctioning and this always happens with robots you know and maybe in the future it won't maybe there'll be more seamless performance but uh, so there he is, a full lifelike. You can really hardly, t- superficially, hardly tell the difference. It's not like a mannequin. It looks like a totally human person. Wow. You know, and it even has um, like flexible facial movements. And it's slumped over because it's broken. <laughs> and you see all the technicians trying to fix it. And you don't quite know how to, how to react, whether like, oh, my God, is he okay? Of course. <laughs> you know, or, or not. And, um, but that's, that's a pretty magical moment in one way when you mistake, you know, it's like the Turing test, when you mistake the robot for something alive. And I think that's why people fear that robot dog is because they, they relate to it as if it is alive because it's so articulated. And, and then it's frightening.
1: Adrienne Wurzel, I would like to know, are you a feminist? I would say yes, because
2: didn't like it when the boys ganged up on the girls and i used to beat up the boys <laughs> and i when i was about 16 on the subway which uh and a man touched me in a very intimate way i knocked him out cold <laughs> yes i would say yes because i'm four women and
1: i'm not taking any shit. <laughs> You're not taking any shit. Amen, Adrian. And finally, this is the last question of our interview. And, um, this is the last question that I ask all of our guests. And that question is what you watching? It is a broad pop cultural question. We want to know about books, movies, music, music, television music videos uh anything pop cultural that you are consuming we want to know about it because it is probably very very cool adrian wortzel what are you watching
2: i have to admit that i love 1940s films and i love characters in them like margaret rutherford which is later actually who um who plays miss marple as a um, sex pot. You know, she she plays Miss Marple as a very desirable, brilliant, attractive woman. And she has a boyfriend in all of the movies, uh, Miss Marple movies, um, that's actually her, was her husband in real
1: life. Oh, so lots of real life flirtation.
2: <laughs> yeah, and... I know that sounds, uh, I don't know, like retro. It's very retro, but those, those movies were so, um, so gay, meaning so happy. So, you know, uh, unscary really. I think that it's frightening to, well, wait a minute. I have to go back. Um, I think I escape into those things, you know, so I don't think they're very relevant to anybody else, but, um, what am I watching? Let me think of something. Well, in terms of art, I could tell you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I've been thinking about these two female artists, Eva Hesse and, um, Hannah Wilkie. And I remember seeing Hannah Wilkie now has a show at the, Pulitzer Foundation, I forgot where it is, but her work was just amazing. These, both these artists and Anna Mendieta use their bodies in their art, which is, to me, I use false bodies. I use robots. You know, I use the facsimile of a body. They use their bodies, and that means they use their bodies totally for their art totally honestly. They made exquisite objects. They made frightening objects. Um, Hannah Wilkie documented basically her dying and her illness. Um, And I remember when I saw those very early on, decades ago, I, I thought this is so frightening. You know, it's really frightening. And yet I knew that it was unbelievably good, you know, because um, scars, you know, deformed bodies from surgery, etc., And also starting out when their bodies were young and very beautiful and whole.
1: Before we wrap up, I want to let our listeners know that all of these amazing projects over your expansive 50-year career, so many of them are documented on your really amazing website, AdrienneWertzel.com. So if any of our listeners have heard us talk about one of your projects and are eager to learn more, want to see video of your robots in action, there's so many resources on AdrienneWertzel.com to check out, including information on your new book that's coming out that's also on your website too and I just wanted to give you my most sincere and heartfelt thanks that you would come on our show you're such a pioneer you're a literal American treasure and I'm so honored that you would take the time to talk to me on this show like I it really means so much thank you and I treasure you as a friend
2: oh me too thank you (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know what, we're, we're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when I come back, uh, my, I'm going to reconvene with my co-host Callie and I'm going to ask Callie and Callie's is going to ask me what you're watching. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor Wolfie vibes publicity. If you're working on a new project, and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you
0: essentially I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they used the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have, we docket. All have a docket. Sex? Welcome to My Vagina. I'm Jessie
1: Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jessie? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> scams. I'm Kayla Rodney. I'm Smith. And, <laughs> and we, we love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening.
2: So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as
0: she could out before anybody caught on. Which amazing, was so
1: smart. I mean, so it's like,
0: smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. One, two, three, four. One,
2: two, three, four. Hey Pop-Tart listeners, have you been trying to record your own podcast but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full-body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan. Lusciouslogan13 at gmail dot com. That's lusciouslogan13 at gmail dot com. If you want to have that luscious sound,
1: and we're back. Hello. Hey, Callie. I know that you were not able to join us for the first segment of this episode, but Adrienne Wurtzel was a delight, and I can't wait for you to hear this episode when it comes out because it was pretty fun.
0: I can't wait.
1: I'm excited. So now is the part of the program where I ask you, because I've got to know and I need to know and I want to know, what you watching? Well, the best thing that I've
0: watched since is Plan B on Netflix. Have you seen it yet? No, not yet, but I heard it's so good. Is it on Hulu? Yeah, it's on Hulu. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, so it's like, you know, one of those teen getting into trouble, coming to age type of things. Um, these two girls are, uh, they, they throw a party because one of them has a crush on this guy and the other one has a crush on this drummer that's like, um, goes to a different school. And then one of them, Gets They get drunk on the grossest, like, jungle mix of crazy shit with, like, cough syrup and pickle juice and stuff in it. Because, you know, they're kids. And they're just, like, pouring everything into the thing. And then she ends up having sex with this, like, guy that she is not interested in. And they have sex in the bathroom. And then the condom ends up in her. And they didn't know. The other guy is, like, super religious and, like, has to go pray right after it. And um, it's very awkward sex, as you can imagine. And then the next morning, the condom plops out. Ew. Then they try to get Plan B. And uh, the Indian Mafia is one of the main characters. She's Indian. And the Indian Mafia always pops up and, like, you know, they're going to tell her mom. It's like all, everyone's connected. So she's like, oh, no, the, he's part of the Indian Mafia, the guy behind the counter. And he refuses to sell it because uh, they're not 18. So then they try to get fake IDs, and then it's just like, you know, a quest, a quest for the pill. And then uh, while they're doing that, they end up trying to drive to another Plan B place that's further away and end up going to, like, the One Girl's Crushes uh, show and, you know, just a ton of, ton of shit going on. There's also a really great scene where they're, <laughs> they're playing this Jesus Trap song in the car. (laughs) So good. It was a great movie. I could totally see me and my friends in high school getting into this kind of madness. Awesome. Very busty. And then I watched this documentary. I believe this is also on Hulu called Some Kind of Heaven. And it is about the largest old folks home in Florida. I watched that. That documentary was fascinating. Wasn't it? Yes. Like 130,000 people live there. Most of them are white.
1: (laughs) But yeah, in Florida, that giant, giant old
0: retirement community in Florida. Yeah. And uh, there's like, you know, it follows a bunch of different people. But the one that I thought was the craziest was that old guy who lives in his van and is just out looking for a rich, attractive woman to set him up for life. (laughs)
1: Yeah, he's just like an elderly gigolo. I also liked the guy who was like a psychonaut and it was just tripping balls all the time.
0: Oh my God, yeah. I, he never really said what he was on, but it definitely wasn't weed. I no, feel like he was, was doing like, like acid. Yeah, or like MDMA or something. He was on some other shit. He was a character. I felt so bad for his wife, though, because she's like, I don't want to leave him, but I can't deal with somebody like this that's always so fucked up. Yeah. And then the last thing I've been watching, which I haven't finished yet, I just started, is so I hope it doesn't get trash. (laughs) Right (laughs) now I love it. It's called Sweet Tooth on Netflix. And that is about, you know, one one of the many pandemic movies out there. But this is a pandemic that kills off all the people. And then the kids are born with animal mutations and they have to hide or they'll get killed. And then there's this one boy who, who has been hiding Uh, with this, uh, it's not his dad, but it's, I guess, ended up being his guardian during all this. And he's, like, a half-deer boy. Aw, he's a little fawn. Yeah, and then he finds an unlikely friend with this guy, Big Man, because the the deer boy's dad dies, or guardian dies. And he wants to find his mom, who everybody thinks is dead. Um, But Big Man says he'll, you know, like, take him on this, Voyage, And they meet, meet up with this other rebellious girl who's just, like, not, she's just up for anything, and she's, like, really spunky. And so they're on this mission, and they, there's, like, other mutated animals living in, the, in this, like, sanctuary area. It's really good. I like it so far. Right on. The um, effects are super cute. Like, his little deer ears wiggle, and he's, like, Aww. curious. It's sweet. And what have you been watching?
1: I'm so glad you asked. You know, I've been um, cleaning up my apartment. My spring cleaning is is inching into summer cleaning. And um, Logan found this awesome show. It's from um, Channel 4 in the UK, but he found it on YouTube. And it's this show that was on from 2015 to 2016 called Obsessive Compulsive Country House Cleaners. What And what they did was like, you know how like in Great Britain, like in England and Wales and Scotland, there's still like these old crumbling manor houses like in Downton Abbey. But they're falling into disrepair because the gentry isn't what it used to be. And what they did on this show is they found they got two people with OCD and then they paired them up with the down and out hoarders of like former great estates in the great British countryside and so (laughs) the two cleaners with OCD move in for a week and I saw two episodes and both of them there was just one lonely weird crackpot living in like this giant mansion alone and then these two people come to visit and they like go around trying to help them clean it obviously in a in a week, they can't clean like an entire mansion, but they make major inroads. And it's just all of them being like, ew, your giant mansion is filthy. And then the person being like, uh, this, this filth has been in my family for generations. <laughs> and then the OCD people are like, get rid of it! It's disgusting. And it's, it's pretty funny. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot to unpack, literally. That sounds crazy. Obsessive Compulsive Country House Cleaners is on YouTube so this other thing that I've been watching is that show Intervention on A&E that show has been on since 2005 it's taken a couple of hiatuses but there are fully 320 episodes of Intervention (laughs) and you can watch them all on the A&E app on Roku so we've just been watching like all these different people who are addicted to all manner of things getting intervened upon by the people that they love. And it's, it's definitely the agony and the ecstasy, like the depths of human desperation and depravity that they have to sink to in order to feed their addictions is very heartbreaking, but it's also great to see everyone coming together because they love them so much. And then you see them all like pink and round and healthy after like 90 days of Rehab, and then it feels uplifting. And the the final thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. It's in the world. We just got a new Patreon sponsor since the last time we spoke, and I was so excited to see that. We really need the help of everyone within the sound of my voice to help keep the whole Bust enterprise alive. And the Bust Patreon page is our fundraiser uh, to help us do just that. It's at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast. And over there, Callie and I have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for every episode of this show. We've also got totally ad free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, like um, the episode with big Frida that you can only hear If you're a Patreon subscriber and there's more, please check it out at patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast. We would love to have you in our Patreon family. And finally, I would like to say thanks to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. We caliente, Logan. And, of course, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. but you cannot find Callie on the socials, so don't even try, right? That's right. You can also email us. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com.
0: CallieW at bust.com.
1: And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash pop charts. And finally... Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. We super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm -hmm.
2: Check out this chart. You see, as artificial representations of humans become more and
0: more realistic, they reach a point where they stop being endearing and become creepy. You're in the valley now, and it's impossible to get out.